Oftentimes there are words from the ancient text of the Buddha, the Buddha's discourses that I really like. I Just a word can reflect a big meaning to me. And one of the words is niroda, niroda. And in Pali, the ni, N-I, means without. And in this, and in this word, rhoda, has a, a few different uh, translations. Uh, one is prison, confinement, obstacle, wall, or impediment. So this word niroda, it is pointing to something without impediment or without confinement, without an obstacle, without a wall. And, and the imagery that that evokes for me, it really points to what the teachings are about, this f- sense of freedom being without confinement or the, without a wall. I like that one too because it's when the, I, I used that example in my last talk when the woman was standing in her childhood home when the walls had burned out and there was without walls and she felt that real sense of freedom and in a way, this niroda, I think it, it really, for me, evokes that sense of what we're doing here. You know, trying to explore and discover this way of being that is free of confinement. And this confinement, this word confinement as well, you know, this, this sense of, of, of this kind of a trap or, or some kind of pressure, some kind of pressure that's pushing in on us, that we feel this confinement. And I think it's helpful to find out what creates this sense of confinement for us. You know, when we first come to meditation and we start to turn our attention inward towards our own mind and our body, it seems that one of the things that we first encounter is this sense of confinement. We feel, it's not like we sit down and, you know, everything opens up and we feel fantastic, you know, just because we're meditating. You know, that's our, somehow our wish or our hope. But it's actually the opposite we hit it's like hitting up against you know even this word hitting up against something that feels solid and because that's the way it is some people turn away from the meditation or from the investigation because it didn't give them what they hoped for which was some maybe some kind of immediate or or uh, quick release from that confinement, some kind of transcendent experience, which is often what we hope for or think might happen when we meditate. But yet, what we confront are these obstacles or these difficulties, these challenges. But why? What is that? What is that? And so much of what the Buddha's pointing to and, and uh, uh, expounding is what those are 
and then how we can be free of them, how we can be free. Uh, the Buddha sometimes uses the metaphor of this freedom being like a prisoner being freed from walking out of the, of the, of the cell. You know, who's a prisoner who's been in the cell and the door opens and he walks out and it's that sense of, ah, I'm free. Or a bird being let out of a cage. And there's a sense of, ooh. And so, you know, we know this. We, we, we actually have a sense of the difference between that experience when we feel the pressure or the contraction, the confinement, the impediments, and when they release. And because the release feels so good, we want that, you know. There can be, if there isn't a kind of clear seeing or a certain wisdom that has been cultivated, we'll get caught in the attachment to that sense, that experience, not even a sense, is experience of being released for a period of time, temporarily. And then the attachment actually becomes another confinement. Then we're, we're, we've created another prison for ourselves. Because then we think that experiences it. And then we can try to recreate and manipulate and go back to that and, and, and forget that, that that isn't it. That was just a momentary arising and passing like all experience comes and goes. So this is a kind of a, a trap we find ourselves in. Of how how do we get out? <laughs> and you know, it's really starting, the teachings really help clarify some of these difficulties for us. This, uh, that uh, the, the first noble truth that there is suffering in life, there's birth and aging and sickness and death, and those are the conditions of being human in this life. And the second noble truth that there is a cause for our suffering, which is the attachment or the grasping onto the way things are, trying to manipulate control so that things will be different than they are. And then when we see that attachment, that grasping, when we start to understand that more fully, there is the release. The wisdom itself brings about a release because we're no longer holding on in the same way. So this is a very important aspect of what we're looking at when we sit. So when we come into contact with this confinement, we can feel like we are locked into a narrow and small world, a a small and, and narrow reality. Our reality can seem very small. And I'm, I know I'm, describing something that all of us have experienced. And in fact, I'd like to kind of ask you to throw out a word when I say, this confinement is felt as what? What are different ways that you feel this confinement? You just kind of throw out a word or two. I feel this confinement as... Somebody throw something out. Tension. Tension. Suffocation. I know that one. Gripped. Hmm? Gripped. Gripped. Yep. 
There was another one. Trapped. Trapped. Yeah. Fear. Pain. Pain. Restless. What's it? Breathless. Restless. Yeah, that restlessness where you feel the trapment and then the restlessness is happening in that pressure cooker. Yeah. Anything else? Blockage. Blockage. Yeah. Yeah, all these ways. I mean, we all know this. We all know this. And yet there is this kind of in our being, it seems that there is this longing to be free of this. There's a knowing, there's a kind of knowing in all beings that, that this isn't the way I want to live my life. This isn't the way I want to experience my, my, my life. And there's a kind of a longing, a, a, a desire to be free. It's, it's, it's not, it's not un, unusual. It's not like there's just some beings, there's some people who feel that. Like everybody, every every being wants to be free of this pain, of this blockage, of this restlessness, of this stress, this longing, this to, this longing to open, open out. You know these words. You can hear all the words how they match this experience. This feeling closed and then wanting to open, feeling more space to be able to breathe. Sometimes somebody said today, I just want to breathe. You know, my life is getting small in such a way that I feel I can't breathe. That's all I want. So there's a there's a there's a, a natural intelligence in the organism itself that we are, the, the, in our mind, our body, our consciousness, our being, that we want to open out, we want to let go, we want to come out of the contraction. This desire to be free, desire to be happy. My, my teacher, Hamid Ali, actually calls it the enlightenment drive. You know, that in human beings there's this drive. It just, it's just inherent in our being itself. To move towards that freedom. We might say to move towards that light the light, away from that which feels dark or enclosed, closed in. And it seems that this is a natural movement for human beings. This sense of our, our wanting our heart to burst, our, this sense of bursting open, bursting free of the tethers of the chains that we feel imprison us. When I when I when I think of this bursting, this experience of bursting, I was uh, I remember this uh, little story that a friend of mine told me a few months ago about her grandson. He's a a lovely. Right now he's about seven years old, I think, and he has parents and uh, his his mother and his grandparents are all involved in the Dharma in the meditation practice. So this little boy has lots of good influences around him. And they got him a cat. He always he wanted to have an animal. He hasn't had an animal, so they bought him one. And it happened to be a kind of long-haired, beautiful cat. And they and and 
this little boy named a cat Mario. And what happened is that Mario was such a beautiful cat that, it, that people would tease uh, Manny, this little boy Manny, that they were going to steal him for themselves, that, that he was such a beautiful cat. I'm going to steal Manny. I'm going to steal Mario. And then, and then Manny kind of got a little concerned about it. He said, but, but I love Mario so much, I want to steal him for myself. You know? I, I, I want Mario. And then he said, when he, when he feels the love that he has for Mario, he feels all these hearts coming out. Like all these hearts coming out. And then he said, I have, and I also have a heart inside of me too. Hearts coming out, a heart inside of me too. And he said, Gran, I feel like I could burst. You know? Just feeling that love for this, this cat. This cat evokes this, you know? And I love that image really you know this this how this little boy must have been feeling all these hearts coming out you know it's not just that the heart was inside he actually felt that expansion that movement of the love going out all around and i love how he said and yet there's a heart inside it wasn't like he was his heart was just going out he was very aware of the heart here as well very beautiful that expression of love and openness and the movement out, not closed, not contracted, not confined. That. And sometimes the feeling can feel somewhat childlike, you know, not so familiar in that way, it can feel very free, very open in that sense. But it seems that so we have this drive, this drive to come out of this confinement, this stress, this uh, impediment. I read this story I came across that also points to uh, this this burden that we're involved in. He's a lecturer when explaining stress management to an audience raised a glass of water and asked, how heavy is this glass of water? Answers called out ranged from 20 grams to 500 grams. The lecturer replied, the absolute weight doesn't matter. It depends on how long you try to hold it. If I hold it for a minute, that's not a problem. If I hold it for an hour... I'll have an ache in my right arm. Right now I have it held in my left arm and I'm starting to feel the ache. (laughs) So I'm going to put it down. Mm -hmm. If I hold it for a day, you'll have to call an ambulance. In each case, it's the same weight. But the longer I hold it, the heavier it becomes. He continued, and that's the way it is with stress management. If we carry our burdens all the time, sooner or later, as the burden becomes increasingly heavy, we won't be able to carry on. As with the glass of water, you have to put it down for a while and rest before holding it again. When we're refreshed, we can carry on with the burden. 
So then it goes, so before you return home tonight, put the burden of work down. Don't carry it home. You can pick it up again tomorrow. So it's not like we have to find a way to just have all our burdens be annihilated so that we're not feeling them again, because that's not really realistic. But how can we find this release so that we have a chance to rest, to get recharged? We've been talking about this a few different times through the retreat. This importance, to, this importance of just for a while, let go, put it down which is what we do when we come here, hopefully. There are periods of times when that's possible. So it's about putting it down. How do we put it down? How do we put our burdens down? And this is the question. This is the spiritual question. This is why we're walking a spiritual path, to find some release from our burdens, from our pain, from our worry, from this dukkha, this suffering. What we find in the mindfulness practice is that we are invited, as a, as a way to explore this, we are invited to be where we are. To be where we are. Moment to moment to moment. The mindfulness turns us back to this moment again and again and again. Because what we find is we have all kinds of strategies to manipulate our reality or avoid our reality or try to change it, control it, all of that. And so when we sit and we practice mindfulness, we return our attention back here again and again and again. And when we do that, we then start to see how we try to get away how we try to get away. And in the the getting away, we're actually creating some of that confinement, that entrapment. And that when we come back, when we rest back here, there is the possibility to have a glimpse into that release, into that freedom. Although it's counterintuitive because it seems like when we come back, we actually start to feel like we're in it. You know, we start to feel the heaviness, the contraction, the tightness, the blockages, the pressure. But interestingly enough, that's what we're invited to do, to go into it to find a way through, to find a way out. Because when we try to run away or escape or manipulate, try to change it, we're actually reinforcing the very difficulty that we find ourselves in. So again and again we're asked to come back, go in, be here, and then see what's true, see what's real. Come back. Otherwise, we just get caught in these mind games, these strategies, defending and protecting and guarding and ignoring and, and uh, all these ways these, these that we, we don't want to face reality as it is because it seems too, too difficult or too challenging. 
And so the very, it's a, the very thing that we don't want to do is what we need to do, which is go in. Go into it. Go into the way things are, just as they are. We have so many, so much difficulty just letting things be. And yet when we do, we sometimes find out how really wonderful that is. What we're actually touching when we do that. I I want to... um, Read this poem from Mary Oliver. Some of you probably know Mary Oliver. She's a wonderful, wonderful poet. And I think she's one of the rare poets that really kind of, through her poetry, touches that kind of bare reality where we're not, where we can kind of take away all that kind of overlay, that extra overlay that we put on top of reality and, and, and obscure our view, obscure the, the possibility of, of, of feeling and sensing and touching the, the kind of pristineness of what's here. And this poem is called This World. I would like to write a poem about the world that has in it nothing fancy but it seems impossible. Whatever the subject, the morning sun glimmers it. The tulip feels the heat and flaps its petals open and becomes a star. The ants bore into the peony bud and there is the dark pinprick well of sweetness. As for the stones on the beach, forget it. Each one could be set in gold. So I tried with my eyes shut, but of course the birds were singing, and the aspen trees were shaking the sweetest music out of their leaves. And that was followed by, guess what, a momentous and beautiful silence, as comes to all of us in little earfuls if we're not too hurried to hear it. As for spiders, how the dew hangs in their webs even if they say nothing or seem to say nothing. So fancy is the world, who knows, maybe they sing. So fancy is the world, who knows, maybe the stars sing too, and the ants and the peonies and the warm stones, so happy to be where they are on the beach instead of being locked up in gold. So happy to be where they are on the beach, instead of being locked up in gold. This sense of freedom, when I read this, I feel that freedom, that everything, everything glimmers. Everything glimmers. And yet we get so caught in our preferences of I want this, I don't want that, I like this, I don't like that. This is gold and that's not gold you know but the way mary oliver sees perceives she's just she try i would like to write a poem about the world that has nothing fancy in it you know seeing seeing some way that everything is unfancy 
But then she's, it's impossible because everything glimmers. Everything glimmers. And I'm, I'm really, I was really touched by this line of so happy to be where they are instead of being locked up in gold. Because I could see how I can try to lock things up in gold, like this is special. This one's more special than another. This has gold, or I want to make this one into gold and not that. Whether it's my experiences, or people, or situations, and this whole kind of push and pull and push and pull, rather than seeing that everything glimmers. And then it's usually that, you know, the, the, the experiences that make me feel happy or uh, make me feel good in some way, those are the ones that are, are, are gold. And then the ones that make me feel bad or I feel unhappy or I feel diminished in some way, that those are not. And I want to reject those and push those away, get back to the gold. And what we've been talking about here is the possibility, if we open to all of that, maybe it all starts to glimmer, glitter. Maybe it all starts to glitter. Here's a poem by David White. You, you'll be, you know by now that I'm very inspired by his poems and his, and his words. This one's called Sweet Darkness. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision is gone, no part of the world can find you. It's time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your home tonight. The night will give you a horizon, a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing the world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn that anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Sometimes it takes the darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness. To learn that anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. So sometimes, you know, we reject that darkness, what we call dark, or we reject those experiences where we feel isolated or alone or you know, they're too, we may feel they're, they're too difficult or too hard or we have some kind of image about ourselves that something's wrong with us or we're bad if we feel those kinds of things. And yet the dark or that, those, those difficult places are actually places that can reveal something to us that we're longing to know, that we're longing to, to feel. And it's really so unfortunate when we set up this kind of bad and good, right and wrong kind of dichotomy with our experiences because there's so much then that we, we can 
lose, not come into contact with within ourselves. So this encouragement to open to all experience and be where we are, which is the hardest thing because we have so many ideas about what our experiences should be like, the gold, and then the rejection of the rest of them and we're caught in this push and pull and push and pull. This was read to me in the very, very beginning of my practice. It was a Ram Das, the um, wonderful spiritual teacher in America, was passing out little booklets with this, uh, the verses on the faith mind from the third Zen patriarch, uh, 606 AD in China. And these words became words that were, we all were deeply reflecting on. The m- many, those first years of our practice. And I remember this going through my head many, many, many times. The first line, of course, the first, this first line. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. So, there we go. (laughs) The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Now, a better better translation, or, or maybe a more accurate translation would be, the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. That was, you know, a few years on after we were, you know, reflecting on this and reflecting on this. Wait a minute, but we, but it's very, it's impossible not to have preferences. And then we realized that, you know, preferences are natural. The problem is the attachment to the preferences. Of course, you know, it's that it's when when we 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 we're getting you know, into the sticky places where, where I have to have it this way or the demands, the controlling of how I want things to be. So it's not the preferences. Yeah, I I like vanilla ice cream, Ben and Jerry's, um, magic brownies. This new one, <laughs> Ben and Jerry's. Magic brownies and has its vanilla with little <laughs> with little chunks of brownies in it. Oh, you know, I have a strong preference for that. When I go to the supermarket, I always look to see if there's they have the magic brownies. You know, not that they have anything more in them. <laughs> Just the, that's what the ice cream's called. Yeah, but <laughs> I can have a preference for that. But if I go to the store. And I'm really craving some Ben and Jerry's magic brownies ice cream, and they don't have it, and it ruins my entire night, and maybe the whole next week, you know, until I can get, you know, that that's that's what we're talking about. And I'm using that as a very benign example, but that's what happens when we don't get what we want. So this is the the verses on the faith mind. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. And this, when he's using love here, he's talking about the grasping love, the the self-possessed love. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. 
If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. Hold no opinions for or against anything. Again, the attachment to the opinions. Of course we're going to have opinions. I had a strong opinion for who I wanted to be president in November in our country, my country. It's the attachment to the opinions, for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. And so this is this is it's it always comes back that the the when we're wanting to understand the cause of our distress, it always comes back to the same point. It comes to our clinging, our grasping, what we get attached to, that the stickiness of our identification with our, the contents of our mind, with the way that our body is, with the way we want things to be in our lives, the situations, our experiences. So we look. We look at how this Stickiness arises is what Ruth Dennison, one of the teachers, calls the Velcro mind. You know, Velcro mind. This is, this is it. And so many things can be Velcroed that we just, you know, we feel the blockage, the, impen- the impediment, the, cons- the constriction. So sometimes we feel the release. It's like that's, those things are dropping away. We feel that, ah, I can breathe again. Those conditions, those conditions of mind and body, external, internal. We start to free that up. So we're looking at what am I adding to my experience? What's extra? What am I bringing on that's extra? When we can just sense and feel what's here right now. This beautiful way that Mary Oliver talks about it, the tulip feels the heat and flaps its petals open and becomes a star. (sighs) The ants bore into the peony bud and there is the dark pinprick well of sweetness. Something so kind of simple about that. When we do the Vipassana out loud, when we're doing now I am aware of, now I am aware of. I think I I love that uh, practice because what I get a sense of is there's a kind of smoothness, kind of a, a, I can, I really feel like I am the flow of experience, the flow of consciousness, kind of a seamless flow without that preference of liking and disliking and this and that, the grip of attachment. It's just, now I'm aware of this. Now I'm aware of that. And this kind of easeful, effortless rising and passing of conditionality. And it can give me a sense, give you a sense of just what that might be like when we're not caught in the pushing and pulling of conditions. 
our grasping and aversion, liking and disliking. This way of not adorning reality, not making it more than what it really is, not trying to embellish it or diminish it, not trying to squeeze reality, try to get more out of it than what it can actually offer us. Like trying to get blood out of a stone. That's it. Tony was <laughs> trying to figure out what that metaphor was. Trying to get blood out of a stone. It's just not possible. We can't get anything more out of reality than what it is actually offering us. I want to read this poem called Unwise Purchases from George Bilger. They sit around the house, not doing much of anything, the boxed set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened, the complete Proust, unread, the French-cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French-cut silk shirt. The reflector telescope I thought would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the window of the high-rise down the road and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining the Crab Nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose texts I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remained unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at the Madrid Hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I like to think that one thing led to another between them and that by tape six or so they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in Seville or Terre Haute. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I have constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias and I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set. A woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has (laughs) always dreamed of meeting. (laughs) And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto... She and I will stand in the steamy kitchen, fixing up a little rosetto, enjoying a modest cabernet, while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. These fantasy worlds, not even in the mind, but then, you know, creating it in our whole life, but then just feeling the emptiness. And yet, at the end, 
coming out of the fantasy, while sitting there, she and I will be there while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. Coming down to reality. And maybe there we find the miraculous. Searching, searching, searching in all the things, all of our experiences. And it's right here, that which we are seeking. But it doesn't mean in that rest, that resting into the here and now, resting into this present moment, that then we just kind of become passive and indifferent and then we're not doing anything or directing our life in any way, not imagining, not dreaming, not envisioning. Because it can sound like that. So it's sort of like a letting go, a giving up, we're just here, and then what happens? You know, we think we turn into a vegetable. Or it's all over in some way, or we just dissolve into the light, or what's some kind of imagination. But it's like when we, when we settle, when we rest, without the searching and the seeking and the wanting and the manipulating, and when we finally touch the real, what's real, Perhaps it's then we can come in contact with something within ourselves that then can speak these maybe quiet voices, these very soft murmurings of our heart, of our being, that then says, what about this? What about that? And it's not coming from this kind of ego-driven idea that this is what's going to make me happy, but it's something much more quiet, much more integrated, much more deeply part of who we know ourselves to be that then begins to move us, physically move us, move us in a direction that is congruent with who we are at the deepest level of our being. When we somehow get out of that whole egoistic way of being that, 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 that is manifesting through the mind, through our thoughts, and through our, our, our uh, lust and our aversions, our likes and dislikes, and all that kind of intensity of our mind, when we get more quiet and still, and start to feel in more deeply, then something moves us. Something speaks. Something acts. And it is in accord with the way things are. It's in accord with the Dhamma, with the nature. Because I am not separate. I am not different than that. I'm coming more into my, my own truth of my nature, of my being. And then the world arises again.
but in a whole different way. And I'm going to end, if you can bear with me, with one more little reading from David White. He says, um, he's talking about the path, this path for us. There's really no path that's laid out for you that you're supposed to be following. He says it has something to do with the actual magic of the touch of your feet on the path itself. And that's the path that you make as you tread on the ground. Joseph Campbell said a marvelous thing. He said, if you can see your path laid out ahead of you, A, B, C, D, E, then you know definitely that's not your life. That's someone else's life that they've arranged for you. Your own life you make with every contact and every step. It's more like traveling over the sea in which you'd have your vessel and your sails set in a conversation with the elements. And you'd have a bearing that you'd run, in a way, and then behind you, you could see where you'd come from, but it would be just like the wake of a boat, and after a while, the wake itself would disappear too. Your own life you make with every contact, every step. This moment, this moment, this moment. Let's sit for just a moment. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings awaken to the truth of things and be free. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.